Malcolm Honline is Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations and joins us for the weekly update here on a Friday morning, Erev Shabbos. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning to you. Less traveling for you this uh, Friday, unlike last Friday when you were in the uh, hustle and bustle of getting from the airport. Well, tomorrow night again back to Israel and to Auschwitz on... on uh, oh, that's right. You're part of the big uh, Knesset ceremony on Monday. That is going to, I can't wait till next Friday to hear your review of that. I'm sure you're anticipating a very symbolic and very moving, uh, uh, ceremony over there. Well, it's an historic event. It's never been done. And, uh, you have the congressional delegation going led by Eric Cantor. Right. Uh, from the House and you have people coming from all over Europe. Well, the rumor still is that you're heading out early tomorrow, uh, right after Shabbos to escape the freezing conditions and get to the beautiful weather in Israel. That's what the, that's what the rumor on the street is. Warm up in Krakow, right? Well, <laughs> I didn't say Krakow is going to be like that, <laughs> but a day or two of a respite in Jerusalem would be bad. I'll tell I'll you that much. I'll be, I'll be in Israel for about six hours. Hmm. Yeah. Just enough time to Fly warm up. Right away. Uh, the Cairo bombings from this morning, who's responsible for them? Well, it's likely to be uh, the Muslim Brotherhood an off, or an offshoot of Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, certainly the people in Egypt are going to blame the Muslim Brotherhood. I don't believe it's the government that did this because their interest right now is in stability following the uh, passage of the Constitution, the upcoming election for president. So the, their, their interest is not to have this kind of disruption. And you see the angry reaction on the streets and the, the calling for... Uh, killing or going after the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, so I think the, the likelihood is it, but it's not. It's not a conclusion you can draw now because there are enough other groups operating in the Sinai, uh, including Al Qaeda linked groups that could carry out such an attack. So essentially, they had their chance, right? The Muslim Brotherhood essentially had their chance. If they would have handled things a bit differently, they could still uh, be in the influential position of leading Egypt at this point, and they lost that opportunity. And now they're angry about that. And they see that Egypt is heading, I don't know if you'd agree with this, you'll tell me, is heading toward a somewhat more of a stable situation, constitution, upcoming elections, etc., and they're angry about that. Well, I, I wouldn't say stable in regard to Egypt. Uh, well, first of all, you're right, they blew the opportunity when Morsi was elected and they had uh, command of, of all of the elements of government, they could have done what they wanted. They replaced the leadership of the army. They, they took over all the key ministries, right. and they overplayed their hand. And they never represented a majority. A lot of this, as we discussed at the time, uh, were really false uh, figures in the sense of the percentage of people who voted, the feeling of the rural areas, etc. And, um, I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood had perhaps 25%, 20% of the following. They, the government under LCC has effectively moved to decapitate the movement to arrest many of the members and to to of the leadership and to uh, to quiet down the movement it do, hasn't disappeared it's going to be there they can cause a lot of problems but the stability will only come when the economy reaches some much better level of productivity when you have unemployment still running 40 50 percent the 50 percent of people make less than two dollars a day and there's been no real turnaround. Is it possible? I mean, I, I know it takes sometimes years, as we see in countries like ours, but is it possible that they could reach a point of economic uh, stability? 
it's possible, but it's not probable in the near future, and it's the instability there. They they are still fighting against the, the uh, elements in in uh, in Sinai, and effectively doing so. But they have the second and third armies tied up there, or at least part of the third army, and also they they have been effective in, in Gaza, where the um, Hamas has said alone that they closed about a thousand tunnels, and they have lost. Uh, I think a, a monthly income of about $240 million in taxes on the, quote, smuggling, smuggled items, which is funny in and of itself. But the, the um, <laughs> you know, the, the increased uh, violence from there and the possibility um, that Israel will have to take much stronger action uh, when you've had 20 rockets uh, fired uh, into Israel in a short period of time, and uh, and all of 2013, I think there were 40 altogether. So these three weeks into 2014, having have had half that total, and uh, you remember when last week when six rockets were fired at mm-hmm. uh, at Ashkelon, right. and the Iron Dome prevented what could have been a major escalation. And Israel's gone back to targeting some of those responsible, hitting those who, who have fired these missiles. Um, but it, it, they're making preparations all the time, Hamas, according to reports, including test-firing uh, longer-range uh, missiles, which because of the restrictions on imports, they are making now at home, inside Gaza, M75 rockets, which can unfortunately hit the middle of Tel Aviv and even to Jerusalem. Uh, the Reuters report said Israel killed two Gaza terrorists in an airstrike Wednesday, saying one of them was responsible for firing rockets across the border during Ariel Sharon's funeral last week. And they're doing the same thing that Hezbollah. They're putting the rockets inside multi-story buildings or under them, and they have cameras on the top of minarets and water towers to gather intelligence, and they are building these underground tunnels which cost about a million dollars each. Right. So they always cry and complain that they have no money, and Israel is, you know, denying them income, et cetera, which is clearly not true. They're dependent on Israel today because Egypt has closed the crossings. Uh, that, they, that that this could be uh, a front, and you see the continued incitement. You see that the uh, and how the youth are being uh, exhorted to, to violence, and this inevitably leads to, to these kind. Of yeah, this is not a, a, a crying over spilled milk of this engagement, but it, you've always spoken about the domino effect of different things in the Middle East. And, and yet you'd have to admit, I think you're saying this, that things would likely be different if uh, if Israel, in fact, would not have given up control of whatever they did have control of in the Gaza Strip. I mean, you see how how it's affecting, how how Hamas taking over and terrorists in general taking over to the extent they have has affected the economy of Egypt, has affected the security of Egypt, and obviously has affected the uh, increased rocket fire on Israel. But you see how even Egypt is suffering because of what happened there. But Egypt has a much freer hand in, in being able to act. You know, the world doesn't hold Egypt accountable for carrying out the military actions against uh, either in Sinai or in Gaza, as they do Israel. If Israel had closed all the access routes to, to Gaza, then you would have heard this uh, wild outcry of indignation, etc. I mean, the same thing with the PA, the, the same thing we see in Iran. You know, you have hundreds and hundreds of executions, right. wild since Rouhani's election, or the so-called moderate and the, the new face. 
And you see very tepid reaction. Finally, this the last couple of days, people have started talking about it uh, because of the talks in Geneva. But in fact, it, it is not true. And the the um, the danger also you have is the spread of uh, elements from within Gaza, let's say to the West Bank, or the report that the uh, at, that there was an attempted attempt to bomb the U.S. embassy in uh, Tel Aviv. Mm-hmm first identified with an al-Qaeda group by some intelligence uh, units. They were recruited, they said, in Gaza by al-Zawahiri, the, the inheritor of, uh, of Osama bin Laden. And there were also going to be attacks on Bin Yenei the convention center in Jerusalem, simultaneous uh, to the attack in, uh, in Tel Aviv. And there were to be multiple uh, attacks. They arrested three people there. Five were going to come in on fake Russian passports. So pretty sophisticated uh, operation, but when you have the ability to to recruit as you can in Gaza openly, and uh, there also were other things, you know, where they found in in uh, Hebron um, two Palestinians who, who were arrested this week with a big uh, weapons cache in their in their home, including the Uzi submachine gun and an M16 rifle. Uh, these are all things that can't just happen. You have to have some support system, even though obviously an individual can always acquire a weapon. There was a Jerusalem uh, Post article this morning that I saw that the United States officials are downplaying the plot to bomb the embassy. <laughs> What's the value of that? Why not highlight what al-Qaeda was trying to do to the U.S. embassy in Tel Aviv? Well, they, they are raising doubts, some questions about whether it is in fact al-Qaeda and whether this was a, a rogue operation. And that's something that only time will tell, and we have to find out more details. So I think that the warning is never to, to go too far ahead of the story, because when you have to pull it back, it's a lot harder, also you don't want to create panic. Um, but, uh, you know, it's surprising how fast they reacted that way. Yeah. How'd they find them, by the way? How'd they uh, quell the uh, operation? I don't know. I mean, that was a Shin Bet operation, I assume. Yeah. Uh, it's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard and listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Rough week in Israel, by the way. Tragedies all around with the, uh, the pesticide, uh, deaths that we saw in Yerushalayim and the, uh, the building explosion in Gilo. It was, uh, Keep hearing. I mean, you know, in the old days, you didn't hear everything till weeks or months later, if at all. You know, these days with the web, we're uh, uh, hearing the uh, the news that uh, comes out of Israel and everywhere, and you know, we're immediately hit with so much, uh, so many bad episodes this week. It is true, and it's uh, the the, tra- the tragic situation with the pesticide, where I think people were using what was meant to be an industrial pesticide meant for the uh, outside because it, it reacts to open air. And they were using it in a home, and we'll have to find out whether that was negligence on the part of those who sold it, those who used it. But whatever, the tragedy is terrible. Now, on the uh, positive side, uh, well, give us your overview of the Prime Minister of Canada and his visit to Israel. I, I wish members of our community spoke about Israel the way he does. Uh, he said one sentence there, that either we stand up for the uh, existence of a free, democratic, and distinctively Jewish state, or the retreat of our values and interests in the world will begin. And it's a message that, uh, you know, obviously resonated in Canada, although there were a lot of critics uh, of him, and there's, it's a very partisan situation generally in, in Canada uh, about Harper. 
but his speech in the Knesset, the remarks of the foreign minister, and the attack on the delegitimization campaign, there, you know, his, his he started singing and playing uh, <laughs> instruments, you know, when yeah, so. at the dinner in his honor. Um, so he has a future if he ever is not. Well, I don't know if you saw the video like I did. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't know if you'd say he has a future in that area, but all right. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm praying that this trip didn't hurt him politically. <laughs> because it may be the only place where he'll still have a job. But you'll play his record. <laughs> Do you think that it hurt him politically, this trip back home? I didn't even think no, of that. I, I, well, he's seen as very pro-Israel, so in part, the numbers in Canada, by the way, on pro-Israel uh, interviews uh, uh, polls are not that good. In fact, more than a half of the Canadian people express negative views towards Israel. In part, that's the, the French uh, sector and legacy. But in part, those who are against Harper, because he's so identified with Israel, express uh, opinions that sometimes are hostile towards Israel. Uh, but Canada, as, as a rule, has been amazingly supportive. And you know that they lost the seat, the nomination for a seat on the Security Council because they were seen as too pro-Israel. At least that's the lore about it, uh, but and, and I know for sure that there's some truth to it, whether it's the only reason or not, is, uh, we don't know, but the, the Canada's assertiveness, and, and by the way, you hear it more from other people. When I was in Israel last week, the president of Sri Lanka was there. Hmm. I doubt very much if, very, if many of your <laughs> listeners know where it is or that it existed. It used to be called Ceylon. And it's a country in transition, and I met the president in September when he came to the United Nations, and in discussion he said, so what do you think I should do? I said, visit Israel. And sure enough, there he is, and I got invited to the state dinner, and he acknowledged it. <laughs> uh, but you see a country like that. Now you got to go visit Sri Lanka. <laughs> uh, well, I'm absolutely going. And it's, it's critical geopolitically. Anybody will look on the map, just look below India. And it's a country that just emerged from a civil war against the Tamil Tigers and, you know, gets criticized for the human rights records rather than praised for the fact of how far they've moved the country. Uh, Tatiana Edelstein passed away, wife of the Speaker of the Knesset. And I also noticed that uh, Shulamit Aloni passed away. And the reason I noted is because when I was growing up, Malcolm, the symbol of everything that was wrong in Israel in my home was Shulamit Aloni. I mean, her name must have come up in any conversation having to do with, uh, with, with, with those who are trying to harm Israel from the inside, quote unquote. You know what I mean. I'm not, I'm being a little too harsh in the way I'm describing it. But, uh, certainly a figure that many people had to deal with in Israel. Yeah, she's one of those legendary characters. Uh, she was heard on all the issues. I, I know full well what you're... Yeah. <laughs> but the younger people here, they wouldn't even know who she is. Right. She's 86 years old, I think. Unbelievable. Yeah, definitely somebody who uh, had an impact on my childhood as I was growing up. Uh, all right, so Israel is um, at the World Economic Forum, correct? Oh, by the way, i got to ask you this because you just mentioned it about the Security Council and Canada's possibility. Uh, to overstate the obvious, I hope I'm right, Israel's never been a member of the Security Council, correct? Israel, no. Okay. Do you know that a group of students toured the U.N. last week, high school students, and were told by the tour guide that it's likely that soon Israel will become a member of the Security Council? Now, is that ridiculous, or is there a possibility? Israel has... Applied, you apply years in advance, and it's rotated amongst different, you know, different uh, sectors. 
So Israel is part of the West European and other group, which is one of the regional groupings. Each of those groupings nominates, I think, two candidates. Uh, the, well, the WIAC certainly nominates two candidates. And uh, there's one that I think was in a, assumed, and Israel was in line. This is, I think, for 2017 or later. And now Germany announced that it is a candidate for the seat, and obviously I think Germany would beat Israel in the vote. Uh, there was some support for Israel's um, potential membership on the Security Council. It would be a big boost. Uh, oh, so it's not it's crazy. Not, it's not out of question. Right, so it's not crazy. All right, very good. So, I mean, that's something, you know, sometimes you always, you always, sometimes we stress how other people should be doing our bidding. So it would be a good, th- you would hope that they would become a member of the Security Council or it's better to stay off? Uh, no, I think it's a recognition and it would uh, counter some of the isolation, uh, isolationists, those who seek to isolate Israel. Um, you know, it means that you have to vote on issues and take decisions. Right. But uh, it's, it, you know, countries vie for it. Yeah, I guess it's very prestigious, that's for sure. Uh, that's one of the reasons that it piqued my curiosity when I heard they could possibly become a member. World Economic Forum. So what happens? Rouhani shows up, and he, he literally sits there like you'd be at an economic convention and tries to pitch business to different countries? He tries to pitch business. He tries to give the impression of... <clears throat> that they're breaking the isolation, and there are many groups going. The United States, in fact, now is trying to to create a counter image of the erosion of of the sanctions regime, and um, even uh, made some public statements in in the last few days about um, uh, about uh, doing business with Iran. Uh, administration officials um, increased their efforts to to uh, try and counter what is seen as a rush of, of co- companies and of delegations from various countries to uh, to go to Iran. In fact, they announced a $152 million settlement with a, with Clearstream Banking, which is based in Luxembourg, and uh, they're going to do other things, I think, to try and do some symbolic acts. But the fact is that Rouhani uh, was, was well-received, even though his comments there... Uh, contradicted everything that the administration had said. That they, he said that we're not, um, we're, we're in negotiations with the U.S. and we want results, not words. He said that we're not going to dismantle a single centrifuge. We're not going to take down anything. Nothing will be destroyed. Um, and uh, he's fighting against the Iran Revolutionary Guard efforts against him in his own country. So he has to put on the show of, of toughness. But I think one should should accept the fact that he's telling the truth. This is exactly yeah. what uh, what they believe and how they're approaching uh, the deal right now. So any sh- any shocks in terms of who agreed to meet with him at the forum? Not that we know of now. Uh, but you, you saw this week how the foreign minister uh, went too far and then in regard to the Geneva talks on Syria and said that you know they will not accept the removal of Assad, then... Ban Ki-moon had to rescind the invitation. That was uh, a slap at them. But they're happy to sit on the sideline because they continue to play the role. They also see uh, that the the petrochemical sanctions are being lifted, the auto sanctions on auto parts, airplane parts, other things, all of which will will boost the income and changes the mood at home. It, It doesn't have maybe as immediate a result in terms of huge jump in employment right away, but over time, 
it will, and that bolsters their, their standing. And this, this idea keeps getting promulgated wider and wider that he is the moderate and he is the face of change. And we know, and if you listen to the statements, he still talks about the destruction of Israel. He talks about all the same you know, terrible lines of Ahmadinejad, except he smiles when he does. It. Right. Uh, Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, met with the Chinese Foreign Minister at the uh, at the forum. Uh, we know that the, um, the the Foreign Minister was in Israel last month. Uh, but in, in general, how would you describe the Israel-China relationship? It's budding. It, there are delegations every week. I met this week twice with uh, people connected to China, uh, interested in doing business, interested in expanding their ties. Um, just remember that when Israel and China together represent a market of two billion people, yeah, ninety nine percent of that is Chinese. But I think <laughs> I think I said together that, they they yeah. represent a huge opportunity, and they are crazy about Israeli technology. They right. they see themselves as the Jews of Asia. They feel a cultural connection. They they actually love to visit Israel. There are scores of graduate students from China studying in Israel. And you know that in most universities in China, there's a Jewish studies department. Um, I, I think I'm, I don't think I mentioned this last Friday. I think I mentioned it during our Tubishvat special a day before. But I heard number one that th- there is a keen interest among the Chinese to purchase some of the largest companies of Israel. I mean, I'm talking about in the billions and billions of dollars, and not just for the product that they might be making. If I told you the name of the brand, I think you'd be shocked. But not just for the product they make, but for that technology, to be able to import what they do technologically in Israel in production of their products to China. And it's so forward-thinking. I mean, apparently, apparently, according to what I, according to what I was told, there are technologies that take 20 years to develop that the Israelis can do in two years when it comes to food production. So the, the interest is just unbelievable. I don't think Netanyahu at this point has a choice but to try to forge an even better relationship with China, only because of the business that might be conducted between the two countries. Well, as you know, they vote against Israel and the U.N. They're, they're, they're not, they haven't become uh, great friends in terms of the foreign policy, but in terms of the day-to-day relationship has really grown a lot. And what you just said is very significant. China has two great needs, food and energy. Mm-hmm. And they buy up any energy. That's why they deal with Iran, because they want to buy all the energy and are now looking at Israel because of the new fines in Israel and are trying to lock in as are other countries, you know, on on the energy that they were producing, the surplus that is expected to be exported. The second need is food. You know that they have bought huge swaths of land in Africa, much to the consternation of, of African leaders, because they take everything and bring it back to China. They don't do it for the benefit of the people in Africa, and that they see it as purely exploitation. But one of the big issues is, like, post-harvest, to, to keep things from rotting and how you deal with it, that's a big issue for the Africans and I think for China. And they see in Israel where they've made such great advances or in the use of water. Israel this year will become water independent. That technology is something that the Chinese uh, want. But beyond that, in terms of the high-tech, many of the uh, much of manufacturing of those high-tech products takes place in China. So it's a natural thing for them to, to want to buy into the companies, to invest they want to do construction in Israel. They want to do joint ventures with Israelis. Wow! Uh, it's uh, it means a lot. Uh, you know, it's a it's a huge market. They have a lot of money uh, that they they can apply, and and uh, at the same time, we know that they they also deal with Israel's enemies. Someone told me that um, someone told me that uh, celebrities in this country who are only you know mildly known in China 
want their biographies translated into Chinese because if only the smallest of percentage of people in China buy the book, we're, ta- we're talking about millions of, uh, of people buying it because that's how many people are in China. So this market, this Chinese market, because of the numbers and their influence, is just going to get bigger and bigger. There's, in fact, a story uh, just this week about one of the Israeli companies, I think it was called Evagene Seed Company, that uses biotechnology or that creates plants that resist uh, pests and different kinds of stress, and another one that monitors, um, uh, that, that produces monitors that maintain quality and uh, consider they have things that deal with the needs of cows and everything else. Kalima is another company that was mentioned that increases the yield by 10 to 50 percent. And these are just a few of the amazing things. You know, we read about the other high-tech stuff, when, which, are, which is much more visible, either drugs or, or electronics. Right. But in fact, in, in the agricultural area, Israel has always been in the forefront with, uh, from drip uh, irrigation to hydroponics, et cetera. But now these companies are doing amazing things. And when you think about it, uh, any forward-thinking company on the web has a Chinese website. And when you think about it, like, like the NBA as a Chinese website. Now, anybody who's even considering uh, getting into that market. Israel's not going to export any basketball players. Well, that's likely <laughs> true, yeah. Um, all right, uh, one chief rabbi or two, do you have any uh, strong opinion one way or the other as they propose that there should only be one chief rabbi in Israel? It will add to the unemployment, but that's <laughs> uh, you know, an internal decision they have to make. I mean, do you think it makes a difference? Look, there was a reason why in the beginning, and you have, uh, I think, some continuing reasons for it. There's a lot of work for for them to do. But, uh, I mean, this I don't think is something you can implement right away. It will probably be done in time. But, uh, again, I don't know enough to make a judgment. Uh, Mayor de Blasio in New York defended New York State Governor Andrew Cuomo, who's come under endless criticism after telling a local radio station that extreme conservatives who are right-to-life, pro-assault weapon, or anti-gay have no place in the state of New York. Now, I'm not here to uh, go through each and every one of these categories with you in terms of who does or doesn't deserve, according to the governor or or uh, or mayor, to be in New York. But, you know, when you see that uh, someone comes out with such a strong statement, and right-to-lifers, and there are many right-to-lifers in our community, as you know. I'm not even going to talk about uh, those who might be uh, pro-assault weapons or those who are – I mean, nobody in our community I don't think is anti-gay, but there's certainly people in our community who are anti-gay marriage. Uh, so does this disturb you when you see the leader of uh, New York City and New York State, the leaders, uh, make a very, very uh, harsh statement like this? Uh, again, uh, I'm not. Um, my field is uh, international and national stuff. I don't. I don't do that much about New York. I do know about what they said, and I, I always think that harsh statements, uh, when you heat up the rhetoric, it always has every action has a counteraction. Okay, I'll ask the question differently. Don't you think Jewish leadership in in the city of New York and state of New York should have been more vocal once these statements were made? People expected that. A stronger reaction or more visible reaction, I think, to some of the statements and some of the actions of others. You know, we've had members of Congress, one who represents a, a district with a significant Jewish population that was pictured with Farrakhan and, and Rouhani. It turns out he wasn't even aware of it because I confronted him yesterday about it. But, uh, you know, the fact that you don't get reaction when things like this happen, it, it only uh, further uh, exacerbates the problems that we're going to confront in the future. About the statements of the governor and the mayor, uh, again, 
I, I'm looking at other things that, the, that, frankly, we have so many areas from the Ukraine and, and its implications for the Jews there to the rise of the Salafis and, you know, the domestic product, problems belong to other organizations. Hmm. Um, on the subject of, uh, well, we'll get to Ukraine in a minute, but on the subject first of the Olympics, uh, so now there's an official video out with uh, responsibility taken for the bombings from a few weeks ago and with threats that the Olympic Games are going to be terrorized in Sochi, Russia. Uh, so who's the, I know it's an Islamic group and Islamic groups who are who are angry at at, uh, at Russia for the way that they react to Islamic um, um, uh, 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 people in you know different uh, countries around Russia. Uh, how seriously has this, is this threat? I mean, uh, is it possible they're going to be disrupting the Olympic Games with terror attacks? Absolutely. We remember Munich. We remember many other attempts in other places. And here you have an organized group. This is a, a relatively remote area in Suji, and uh, the, um, the these are active uh, groups. This, it's not, I think, one centralized operation like an Al Qaeda group, but these are cells which link together in, in the, I think they call it a family or some, they have some other uh, name for it, uh, and the, in, each cell operates independently, but they have a common leader guide that they look to, and, you, you know, in Russia, as I've discussed many times, has, has its own Muslim problem, and part of what it does with Iran and elsewhere is to buy them off and to buy off the pressure, the external pressure, for what they do in terms of suppressing that population. And here you have, they have this opportunity, and they warned them that if they brought the, um, the Olympics there, that they would carry out these activities. And supposedly there are three women already inside, so you ready to, to, to act. Uh, so it, and, and I think more than a third of the tickets haven't been sold. And there are families that are saying they're not going to watch their own kids play in the Olympic Games. Yeah, because the kids say they don't want to be them, they don't want to be distracted worrying about their families when they want to be focused on the games. But you would so never not so concerned about themselves. They think it's it's about uh, the distraction. But you would never encourage that. I mean, uh, that that's really caving into terrorism, right? Or terror threats? Yeah, but you know what? Russia does so much to support terrorist groups that it comes home to roost. That nobody should think that they're they're invulnerable to it. And maybe because they believe they're vulnerable to it, they do what they do sometimes. But you see, even even in Syria today, where Russians, dozens of Antonov uh, planes, these are their transport planes, are bringing armored vehicles, etc. They, they continue to, to trade and, and are, are just signed a $150 billion deal with Iran. They, uh, they work with other uh, uh, groups and, and in other countries. So this is terrorism coming home to roost and and i think that uh, they have to look at the sources for this you know china has it too by the way in xinjiang province and they're fighting uh, islamists there so it's uh you know everybody is touched by it and uh, the russians uh, by the way turned to israel israeli security uh, services are helping them um, in in trying to deal with the security situation. Wow! And in the Ukraine, you mentioned. Uh, tell me how it is affecting the, the the riots in Kiev or affecting the Jewish community of the Ukraine. Well, as you know, there's been a rise of anti-Semitism in Ukraine of late, and there have been various manifestations and talks. Some of these the riots have at times taken on tinges of anti-Semitism, but with the end of the talks, we saw the rise of these demonstrations increase. White House is threatening uh, sanctions against the Ukraine. 
some Jews were warning that the people should remain quiet, the community should not get involved in this. Other leaders have gotten involved, uh, some because of their own political orientations from the past. It's not just something from, uh, you know, from, from now. So it, it, it does pose the potential because any kind of disruption there can lead to, to increase in anti-Semitism. There was several stabbings. You remember the rabbi this past week, and uh, a student, a young man, uh, was attacked. And that was in Kiev? That was not in Kiev, but I'm saying in general in right. Ukraine. And in Kiev there has been an increase, and in, it was not something that was visible there for, for a long time. But certainly now it's uh, becoming uh, much more uh, noticeable. All right. Have a safe trip to Israel. Monday you're in, uh, you're at Auschwitz with the uh, incredible group from the Knesset, and as you said, representatives of the U.S. government as well. International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and uh, very anxious to hear next week. Nahum, one thing I, I think we should mention because we always talk about when when all these attempts at delegitimization that we see, you know, the attacks on SodaStream, the attacks on Israel's legitimacy, challenging Israel's right. Again, uh, Abbas uh, raised all sorts of questions. And I know what you're about to say. And they find the oldest inscription ever in the Hebrew language, right? Going back to the 10th century BCE to 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 the time of Shlomo HaMelech, <laughs> and I mean Absolutely. it's just so mind blowing. I mean people are worried about Justin Bieber getting arrested in Miami when you have a story like this, which, which gets so little notice when you have the. It took them a long time to decipher it, and it deals with lower-class wine that they probably served to people who worked outside the temple or uh, uh, guards or other people in the area. In it, but it, but it, it shows the system that they had then, and it's in Hebrew. Now, when the United Nations takes up all these questions of the delegitimizing of Israel, saying we have no roots there, saying we have no connections to the place, when you see all of the campaigns to it, just like this, it's irrefutable. And again, people, I hope on Shabbos, talk to your kids. Go and read the story and tell them the significance of this, of where we come from, all of our heritage. It's right there. I, I, just, to me, an amazing story and, a, and the antidote to any of the depressing and other stories. We're, we're here. We were there for, for all these uh, hundreds of years, thousands of years, and we're going to be there. 100%. Malcolm, thank you so much. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Malcolm Honline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations.